Hi, I'm Arlen Walker, and I am live from Pelham's Wasteland, and today I am going to, A, respond to a call-in from uh, Spencer Freethrall, um, and um, talk a little bit about, so um, I called in to Dave Aldridge's um, podcast talking about a couple of things, um, but in particular, one of the things he was asking about was kind of his sort of his audience's thoughts on reading um, Robert E. Howard in particular and kind of in general the the influence of some of these early certain sorcery stories on the RPG hobby. Um, and I had uh, a number of thoughts about that and I shared, um, a number of them with Dave and I thought I would, um, do a, a full podcast about some of my thoughts about sword and sorcery as a genre and about Robert E. Howard and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so stay tuned for all of that. Hey, Arlen, hope you're doing okay. Um, I really enjoyed that, um, sword and scoundrel review you did there it's a game i picked up probably about a year ago now and while uh yeah it does come across as quite intuitive i don't think i appreciate quite how elegant it was compared to a lot of other systems and um it just seems to be a nice combination of simplicity of the you know the central mechanic but um you can kind of get quite a bit of, uh, I don't know whether the crunch is the right word, but you can do some sophisticated things with the combat. Um, and it, it just seemed to uh, um, work quite well. And thanks for reminding me of that, because I'd completely forgotten about it. And I'll go back, have another look. Thanks. So yes, I I totally agree. Sword and Scoundrel, super slick game. It uh it just works really well. It um very smooth as far as I can tell to to play out. Um it reminds me a little of the Conan 2D20 system with the um required number of successes element. And I'm not sure, I don't know, I was thinking about how could you tinker with it to add momentum into the system to um, do that. But I, I don't know if there's a good way to, to do that. But anyway, um, that's just kind of what I was thinking um, about it. But yes, Sword and Scoundrel, it's a really, um, don't take my word for it. It's a uh, really high quality game even in its unfinished state it's uh very cool very much worth reading at least to get some ideas about it because it's a um a, a quality well put together well engineered beta um it, it is well engineered for a finished game uh it is clearly not finished in the sense that there's a lot of kind of other things that aren't there yet. So like there's no, you know, list of sample NPCs statted out or anything like that. That would be nice to have if you're going to run fights and things like that. But yeah, it's a, um, a well put together game, really, uh, quality 
quality game, Sword and Scoundrel. Check it out. It's super cool. And like I said, it's free. So go get the PDF. Why wouldn't you? Because it's free. And all it costs you is a little bit of time to read it. It's not even that long. It's like 280 pages. Well, I mean, that is a little long. But, you know, you know what I mean. Compared to some RPG rule books, it's not that bad. Anyway, um, that's it for that. Let's talk sword and sorcery. So I called in and left apparently seven messages on Dave Aldridge's um, podcast. And I still have more to say because I am long-winded. But what Dave was asking about was how the his listeners felt about reading Robert E. Howard and particularly in reference to um Robert E. Howard's um outdated perhaps even repugnant um views on race. For those of you who don't know Robert E. Howard um I am not the best person. You should listen to Dave Aldridge's podcast because he he puts it in in more um, specific terms. But uh, one of the things has to do with um, Robert E. Howard's sense of evolution and um, devolution, basically the the decline and fall of cultures and societies and races in particular and this idea of – it's very much tied in with his concept of heroic virility and all that sort of stuff. And in fact, I um, talked about um, Blade of the Iron Throne because it is sword and sorcery actually I think has one of the best demonstrations of this sort of concept of um, races or or nations, this idea that – races go through this cycle where they are first virile savages and then become kind of nomads or hillmen more settled and then become civilized. And then if they ascend to the absolute heights of civilization, they become enlightened. Um, But then they gradually fall into decadence and finally into complete degeneracy. Um, And then presumably out of degeneracy, return to a sort of state of um, virile nobility, the the noble savage. Um, and this is very much how Robert E. Howard saw um, races. And it's, it's complicated, um, specifically because uh, there's, it's different in different Howard texts kind of, the the problems with his views, I, I guess I should say, as opposed to um, people who who know me particularly well may know that I am I'm not a huge Lovecraft guy. I am often more interested in the things that other writers have done with cosmic horror than Lovecraft himself, and in particular, I think a lot of a couple of really great horror writers. Um, 
specifically people like um, Arthur Machen and Algernon Blackwood got completely overshadowed by Lovecraft. And that's really unfortunate because Machen and Blackwood are both really, really excellent authors. Um, totally worth checking out if you have not checked them out. Um, but it, it seems to me that it's sort of easier to characterize Lovecraft's problems with race in general than it sometimes is with Howard because Howard um, approaches it in different ways at different times. And it's, it's not just a black people are bad. It's, it's complicated partly because Howard is more than willing to recognize um, the sort of savage virility of um, non white races. Although is he, especially in, I think it's in the Solomon Kane stories in particular that he makes it really clear that he has this, um, uh, fetishization of white virility in particular and it's it's complicated um and that's part of why i'm saying it's complicated because i think it's different in the solomon kane stories and in the brand mcmorn stories and in the conan stories and in the king cull stories um i have not read I don't know if I've read any other of Howard's creations than those four, um, but I've read at least some of all four of those and all of some of them. Um, and it, uh, it, it's complicated. Personally, I, I am not really into it, but it also doesn't kind of, bother me so much that it makes it impossible for me to enjoy. And one of the things I talked when I called into Dave's podcast was that I actually think that there's some really interesting things that if you can get past these um, more repugnant elements that Robert E. Howard is sometimes uh, more modern than we may give him credit for otherwise. And in particular, I was talking about um, a story where a, a woman was talking about reading Howard and how she felt like Howard was remarkably progressive with gender, at least sometimes compared to some of the other authors of his time, because there are um, female characters in Conan who are just as capable and powerful and cunning and um, have just as much narrative agency as Conan himself. Um, uh, Bellet of the black coast and Valeria of the, the red nails or maybe um, both being two, two particular examples of powerful um, women, um, strong female characters, not just in the sense of strong as in well-crafted, but also strong as in just, just powerful, having lots of narrative agency and lots of, um, power within their own stories. And that, that was really interesting because I, I wouldn't have necessarily thought about it that way before, but looking back at it, I think there is something, um, refreshing about Howard in at least some of those stories and his, his willingness to, despite his kind of views on race and sex and all that sort of stuff, his kind of willingness to appreciate um, a, a 
capable figure with serious narrative agency kind of wherever they come from. And that that's really interesting. Um, and it makes for really just exciting reading. Um, I, I think Howard's stories in particular of the various things that are um, available to us as kind of inspirations for um, gaming for, for RPGs and all that sort of stuff. I think Howard's stories in particular are some of the most approachable um, because they're very quick moving and exciting and fun. And, and there's an element of um, Robert E. Howard also wrote a lot and he edited a lot. And um, there are some authors who I don't think edit enough and some authors who I think, I don't think there are authors who, I suppose what I should say is, I don't know that there are authors who write too much, but it seems to me that there are authors who write too much without editing. Um, but Robert E. Howard is not one of them. He um, wrote prolifically and created a lot of stories. And what the, part of what that means is specifically that Robert E. Howard had a lot of practice. And um, I am definitely of the camp that believes in the idea of artistic creation having a level of uh, um, craft and skill and that that it is possible to make a work of art um, badly, right? That, that you know, you uh, it's not all just, well, it's about how it makes you feel. But no, there is, there is um, real skill that goes into crafting a well-written short story. And one of the things that that means is that if you, um, if someone, someone like Robert E. Howard, who wrote a lot of short stories and thought about them a lot and practiced them a lot, ends up with really tight short stories. And I, I think Robert E. Howard's short stories are actually um, a really great way to try to get into that type of storytelling. And I, I'm going to talk a bit more about that concept in a little while. But, um, well, actually, I'm going to just move right into that. So um, one of the things that a number of the modernists thought about was this idea of an artistic culture, a creative culture. And um, T.S. Eliot has a famous essay about um, culture and art. It's called like the, the, the culture of creation or something like that. Um, but, but Ezra Pound thought about it too. And um, William Butler Yeats and, HD has poems about it, and there's um, there's a lot of different modernists. I, I just listed a couple from one small branch of modernism, but there are a lot of modernists who thought about this problem, and this idea being that you have a creative culture, and while works of art are the product of individuals, they are also in some sense the product of a culture. And what do you do about that? And in particular, um, how do you think about that? And how do you um, create great art? What do you do, for instance, if there's something wrong with the artistic culture that exists that makes it more difficult for um good art to be produced, right? That's that's something, a sort of 
deeply dangerous concept for someone who is devoted to making good art. What if, what if your artistic culture has a flaw in it, an inherent flaw that will make it difficult to create good art? That's something that's really um, ought to be concerning. Um, and this is sort of tied into a lot of the mythology that a number of the modernists, especially these British and American modernists, are interested in. Um, I don't know how many of my listeners have read um, The Golden Bough, which is a fascinating, not a great work of anthropology, I think, considered nowadays, just honestly, but but fascinatingly about mythology and about storytelling in particular, and really um, definitely worth reading even if it is, it's a little bit like reading Edward Gibbon. You don't read it for the history. Um, you don't read Gibbon for his, um, for the historical details. You read it because Gibbon is an excellent writer. Um, in the same way, you're not reading um, the Golden Bough to do anthropological research. You're reading it to understand. Um, I can't think of the name for whatever reason. I, I'm sure it'll come to me. Um, the name of the author of the Golden Bough. I'm gonna look it up. Um, Golden Bough. Fraser. That's who I was thinking of. Um, translated uh, a number of other things too. Um, in addition to writing this kind of monumental work that's about mythology and 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 culture and narrative and storytelling and all of these different things um but what i was saying was that the modernists thought about these mythologies and this idea of culture and um the nature of culture and mythology and a a creative culture out of which art appears out of which art is generated by um, members of this culture and um, one of the the questions so um, I know because I'm into to T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound those are two of them that I know the best um, but Ezra Pound in particular thought that one of the best sculptors ever had been killed in the early days of the first world war and so there was this sense that the post-war culture was missing some of its great, some of the people who should have been great creators of post-war culture in, in the twenties and in the thirties had died in the war and just didn't, weren't there to create the great art that they should have been creating. And that's a kind of sobering thought. Um, but what I'm getting at has to do with the concept of sword and sorcery in particular. Um, and I'm going to take a break here to kind of reshuffle my thoughts and, and come at you talking specifically about sword and sorcery in artistic culture. So part of what I think is important about understanding um, fantasy literature and sword and sorcery and all that sort of stuff is to understand that the the pulp era is a um, specific historical period of time where there is a market for and therefore there is writing of these adventure short stories and it is particularly that they are um, short stories they are tied to um, adventure and the um, 
Robert E. Howard's sense of virility, the, the masculine values, all of that sort of stuff. And they are um, written um, not for um, scholars to unpack all of the meaning, but for um, young boys to get excited by the adventures in them and all that sort of stuff. And, and so that means specifically that they're, they are exciting and they're fun. And um, that's not to say that they don't have depth, but they are specifically written as entertainment, that there's this whole um, culture. There is really a productive culture that produces pulp entertainment. And part of that is sword and sorcery and sword and sorcery as a genre is really, um, it kind of stretches into, it has its fingers in sword and planet adventures or planetary romance adventures from earlier, like with Edgar Rice Burroughs. And then there's sort of a later thing. But one of the things that happens is that that productive culture um, loses its market. And there are a number of reasons for this. But the, the important thing is that soon enough, there are no longer nearly as many of these pulp magazines out there. They're not as wildly successful as they were. There's just not a market for this. And so what you have are sort of generations of sword and sorcery authors, right? You have the kind of golden age with Robert E. Howard at the helm, but you have other Andrew J. Offit and um, Clark Ashton Smith and even – I. I talked about Lovecraft before, but Lovecraft definitely fits into the pulp, if not the sword and sorcery. Um, uh, there are a number of others. And some of them kind of in the in-between the generational lay bracket, I think, um, with the, the Mars ones. But um, C.L. Moore and... I'm trying to think of some other ones. I... I really should have pulled up a list of sword and sorcery authors. But basically, there's this golden age of sword and sorcery production, of the writing of sword and sorcery stories. And then what you have is a sort of next generation of authors who no longer have that particular creative stream, but who read those things when they were younger and are very influential on them. So you have authors like Jack Vance and Michael Moorcock um, as as two of the big examples, both of whom have a lot of the pulp sci-fi, pulp fantasy in their work, but aren't really working in a um, – they're not producing art in a situation that allows them to really continue – producing pulp content the way that the golden age of the pulps allowed. Um, and so what they create is something a little different. They, they um, sort of take, it, it's particularly obvious with Michael Moorcock because Michael Moorcock is really concerned with um, things like um, adapting the monomyth and, and postmodernism and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but they take these, stories and um, do kind of what I think are really interesting things with the themes and the styles and all of that sort of stuff in creating something um, new that is similar to the original sword and sorcery pulp stuff, but is not quite the same. Um, and then you have other 
authors. You know, you have all of the Conan pastiches that were written that um, of of different degrees of quality and different levels of um, Robert E. Howard-ness. Um, and then you have authors like Carl Edward Wagner, who, um, if you have not read Carl Edward Wagner's Kane series, I am a big fan of the Kane series because it oozes atmosphere. Um, and it is very, it, it has a real, um, gothicness to it that I think is really fun and interesting. Um, it's a little bit more introspective than, um, Howard's stories, a little slower paced and all that sort of stuff. And, um, but it, it has a really Carl Edward Wagner is really good at creating, um, atmosphere for his Kane stories. Um, but that's another kind of adaptation of the original sword and sorcery model. Part of the problem is that these next generation authors do not dominate the genre in the way that um, their predecessors dominated a genre, right? Um, Jack Vance, despite being a really excellent author, Michael Moorcock, despite being a really excellent author, Carl Edward Wagner, despite being an excellent author, do not have the same cultural reach as Robert E. Howard did and does. Robert E. Howard, um, phenomenal cultural reach, partly because of his position within the the sort of pulp hierarchy. Um, and what that means is that I think in some ways, and then there is the influence of Dungeons and Dragons on fantasy, um, which I... Personally, I generally think that a lot of the things that um, D&D and gaming in general have brought into fantasy storytelling is, is kind of negative. Um, ultimately, I don't think that a lot of the... I think that in particular, a lot of the kind of gamist elements have been... Um, You have thought about these stories in those game terms in ways that don't necessarily make sense or aren't interesting or lose something. In particular, one of the big things has to do with parties. Um, you can't have a solo adventurer like Conan and also have a system that requires a party with a wizard and a cleric and a thief and a fighter. You, you just can't have right you can't have a system that needs a full party and also have a solo hero that those are two fundamentally incompatible things by definition um and so i think basically i think there's been a number of kind of negative things that um fantasy as a gaming genre has brought into fantasy telling fantasy as a storytelling genre. Um, not all negative and there's some, there's other good things and there's kind of, it's interesting the way that they have interacted, but um, in particular, and I think the big thing is that I, I am just not interested in the sort of stories that D and D fifth edition tells well. And um, it seems to me that it has a sort of particular brand of story that it tells well that um, 
demonstrates a whole lot of what for me is wrong with um, fantasy fiction that doesn't have a good sense of the history of the genre and a thoughtful use of that history and that weight and tradition and um, in particular so um, I'm going to skip Skip forward and then come back, and hopefully it'll all make sense. Um, if you don't know about the um, critic Northrop Fry, you should read some Northrop Fry because he's a, a wonderful literary critic. Um, in in the sense, not of like saying this book is good, this book is bad, but in in the sense of textual criticism, um, explaining what the words mean essentially. Um, yeah, explaining what the words mean and how they came to be the way that they are. And one of the things that one of these ideas that Northrop Fry has that I don't know if he is the the first one or the only one or anything, but he has this discussion about how um, personal um, extemporaneous kind of just ejaculation of art um the 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 idea of kind of inspiration is actually a um learned cultural behavior and it is a skill right that um speaking from the heart essentially is not doesn't actually come from speaking from the heart, if that makes sense. Speaking from the heart is a um, literary tradition. And if you learn that tradition, you can essentially speak from the heart while not actually literally doing that because, because you can't literally do that because what you will produce if you don't use that tradition is crap. Um, and this, this idea that um, basically what, comes to us as the best examples of this kind of um, spontaneous and um, deeply, deeply personal art is actually not nearly as spontaneous and deeply personal as um, it pretends to be. So all of that about Northrop Fry is a sort of long way of getting at the idea that artistic creation is a learned skill and a practicable one. That it is not a matter of creating great art is not a matter of getting lucky on a roll on a D20, but rather of putting the time in so that you can take 20 on a D20 and putting your skill points into the artistic creation skill or putting your points in so that you have a larger dice pool in artistic creation or however you want to think about it, that, that it is something that you can actually practice and get better at. And that it's not as though it has to be a struggle between um, inspiration and learned skill because the inspiration um, is there. It's, it's, I think present in all of us really naturally the the ability to um, 
I've heard it described as kind of childlike creativity, um, I think is we have all, all of us who are adults have been children and have experienced childlike creativity. And that might not mean that it is easy, but that it is still somewhere within us. What we need is um, to have the discipline and the skill to bring that out effectively, not be dependent on the whims of um, fancy or, or kind of completely um, completely dependent on being in the right mood or anything like that. And there is a further element, which is one of the really wonderful things I think about the modern world is that while it is hard to create a literary culture like that surrounding sword and sorcery in the sense that you can create a um, massive publishing phenomenon and, and have a lot of people working in it, we have the capacity to create a really different sort of literary culture, a sort of personal literary culture today, because those of us who live in the first world have really unprecedented access to art and literature. Um, I, in college, I remember a friend talking about how he um, felt like he was almost uh, injured by the capacity to record music. And because when a lot of this classical music that he really loved was written, the people who really, really loved it might only hear it, you know, two or three, or if they're lucky, four times in their lives. And that he instead could put on a CD and listen to this music of immense beauty um, all the time and that he um, it made it 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 almost uh, made it hard to do anything else than just listen to beautiful music and things like that and um, I think in a similar vein we today have, access to to film and to literature and to art physical art and to poetry and um all of these different things in a way that no one has ever had access to before and that we ought to be serious about that we owe it to ourselves to take advantage of that to work at creating our own literary cultures if we want to be serious about being storytellers and everyone i know is a storyteller and i suspect everyone that i don't know is a storyteller too i think central to being human is being a storyteller and so it is worth reading widely and deeply and watching widely and deeply and going to museums and experiencing what the world has to offer because um, we are in a sort of um, unique position in human history. I once was talking to a, a different friend about um, 
the the sort of core concept of my um, Kindle, and I read on the Kindle a fair bit, um, having just an absurd number of books because I've I've bought too many books, too many eBooks through Amazon, um, that I could hold more books on that digital device than a medieval monk, even a very learned medieval monk, had probably seen in his entire life. And that's kind of an amazing concept. And that's not to say that I am um, by any means the equal of a, a thinker of a, a St. Augustine or a Thomas Aquinas or a Pelagius or um, any number of other um Medieval, those those are all kind of late Roman medieval and medieval um, church figures, very very learned men. Um, but I have some advantages that they didn't really have, and I I think we all owe it to ourselves to be serious about the literary culture that we are personally cultivating for ourselves. Um, that we should do our best to read the best literature and to watch the best movies and to experience, um, to listen to the most beautiful music and to um, see the finest paintings and statues and all that sort of stuff because no one in human history has had our kind of access to all of those things. Um, and that's that's something i think meaningful and um that goes into a second thing if you like sword and sorcery it's going to be hard to publish sword and sorcery but there's a lot of it out there there's a lot of the the whole kind of heyday of the culture of sword and sorcery and of pulp publishing um it's easy to get. I mean, I was I was a freshman in college with no money and spent a dollar to get the complete Robert E. Howard Conan collection on Kindle, and and it you know was like I, I don't even know how long it took me to read a bunch of them, but it was it was it's kind of an amazing concept that we have access to that. Um, anyway. I think we should continue to read Robert E. Howard. I think we should think about our own artistic cultures, the sort of personal artistic culture that we create based on what we engage with and what we um, see and think about and analyze and all of that um, because we owe it to ourselves. And in particular, I think if you like sword and sorcery if you like homeric epics nobody is writing homeric epics anymore but that doesn't mean that you can't engage with that as a literary culture and and kind of create a personal literary culture based on homeric epics there are um my my Reddit and Twitter username Cows from Powis comes from uh, an author, John Cooper Powis, but Cooper is spelled C O W P R, like Cowper. I assume you say it Cooper because I've never heard somebody say his name out loud. Um, I've only read it. Um, 
and he is a sort of fascinating, criminally underread British modernist. But I, I have found his books, and I, I have access to them, and I don't have to be dependent on my library stalking them or um, be dependent on, you know, somebody else telling me about them. I, I sort of, it, John Cooper Powis is a part of my literary culture um, and he's a wonderful author. And sure, I wish that more people knew about him and more people read John Cooper Powis. Um, but really, there's something really special about getting to to have have him and all of these other authors as part of my literary culture. Um, so I think it is worth taking all that seriously. And I think it's worth reading Robert E. Howard and the other sword and sorcery authors, because I think they um, have a really interesting literary culture to tap into. Um, and in particular, I think that the sort of personally for me, I like Robert E. Howard a lot. I think that in some ways it's the the second generation that really did something wild that in um, in the way of um, declining cultures that begin to look inward, um, the later writers of sort of, modified pulp, Michael Moorcock and um, Jack Vance and Carl Edward Wagner, um, all of them write some really fascinating things um, that are totally worth reading and engaging with and um, kind of depend on an understanding of sword and sorcery on some level, um, but are, are really cool. So I'm going to stop the recording here. This episode has gone on a really long time, but I think I'm going to talk more about um, art and literary culture and all that sort of stuff at the computer. So today will probably be a, a double upload episode, double upload of the podcast. Um, so if you like Live from Pelham's Wasteland, that is is great for you. And if you don't like it, then why on earth are you listening to this tiny little podcast? Oh, one thing, Arlen, there is no Star Trek versus Star Wars, so watch yourself some original series and enjoy. Catch you soon. So I have been corrected by Dave Aldridge, great podcaster. Go listen to Deep Percentile. Um, I actually got a chance to play Star Trek Adventures, and I'm not going to talk about it right now because this episode is already looking at 40 minutes plus, um, but... It was a blast. I'm going to talk about it in just a few minutes for the next episode. And um, yeah, I've been Arlen Walker. I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland. I will see you next time. Engage with me as part of your literary culture here on Anchor or on Twitter. I would love that. It it is super cool to get call-ins. It's super cool to talk to people on Twitter. You can even email me um, if you want to do that. I Yeah. Anyway, live from Pelham's Wasteland. See you next time. Take care, everybody.